Marcus Lazzati. And this is Passport Necessary, a podcast dedicated to growing up as a TCK and how it's affecting us now that we are adults. And today mm-hmm. is the final part of our art series, um, and we'll be talking about architecture. Yeah. So I know for me, uh, I don't really have very strong memories of the first place I lived in because I was Mm -hmm. very young. Um, But having been back to Louisiana many times since then, I think a big part of Louisiana architecture is that houses are um, not very tall. (laughs) Most houses in Louisiana are like most that I can think of are usually like one story, but there are two story houses. They just usually belong to people who had more money um yeah a lot of louisiana architecture is basically just like trying to get rid of the heat and trying to keep the house cool as much as possible (laughs) (laughs) that makes sense makes sense yeah um i think the most like the architecture that has always stayed with me and i think made a really big impression in my mind was japanese architecture because it was so Mm -hmm. different than anywhere else I lived in. Um, there, yeah. There's something that's very beautiful about the way that wood is used in Japanese yes. architecture. Yes, I mean, it's, I always wondered about why they always used so much wood and then somebody basically just pointed out it's because they don't have the stone. And at first it seemed a bit of like a weird idea to me because you kind of think, well, everywhere has stone or rock. And then you think about it, yeah, but Japan is essentially built on volcanic islands so they're relatively young geologically speaking so if you think about it in that way most of the rock might not be sort of like sandstone or granite which is really hard i mean sandstone isn't but you know you could you could use that for kind of like carving intricate things Mm -hmm. and granite is just really hard so it lasts a long time so if you don't have that much of those resources you're going to have to think of things differently and the best resource you have then is wood Mm -hmm. and i think japan does have the biggest wooden building in the world or at least one of the biggest, uh, Todaiji, the temple in Nara, mm-hmm. which apparently used to be even bigger before they burnt it down in one of their civil wars. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so it, it it's impressive. And the thing is, is that it, the proportions and the way that the buildings work is really impressive. Yeah, the scale is quite impressive. Mm, yes. And the thing is, it, it's it's not the height of the buildings. It's the space that they occupy, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. they're set within gardens particularly temples and things like that set within gardens there's a lot of space around them and so the building doesn't go up it kind of expands in space sort of like laterally it isn't not vertically mm-hmm. and that's sort of where the sort of beauty of it comes from so being inside the building and walking through it is as interesting as looking at the building from the outside I mean, it's true of like european architecture as well but it's done differently yeah i think european architecture is very often more stone based there's there is mm, wood yeah. it's just not a lot of the foundation work in architecture built in european buildings are usually more stone and masonry based yes and then usually yeah. roofing will have a lot of wood in it or the interior will have yeah. wood um yeah and i think with japanese architecture we're speaking basically for traditional architecture because modern japanese architecture has changed a lot um actually the thing that's so fascinating with japanese architecture is how tall they can get their buildings especially in tokyo with the amount of earthquakes that they have but it's because the technology has gotten better and they're able to counteract 
the strength of earthquakes. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is, is I, in 2020, before everything really kicked off, I was in, in Japan in February and going through the big cities and things like that, I went to Osaka and passed through it a couple of times. And you look at the architecture there and it is impressive. The buildings are very big mm-hmm. and they are very impressive. Um, you don't really see things like that in most of Britain, for example, like these huge modern structures. And they're big. They're very big. Um, probably not as big as stuff you'd find in the States. But I mean, in Britain, you wouldn't really find anything like that unless you were going to London. Mm-hmm. Just the scale is is beyond most of what you would expect in Britain. Mm-hmm. As, I, and as I say, unless you were in London. And that's in the sort of like the area of London that they call the city. Even the city doesn't really have that kind of architecture and it, it's impressive in Osaka if you go down to sort of the like center of town it's it's big everything's big yeah that's actually something that I noticed the most when I left France because I was going to mm. the United States for my bachelor's and when I left France and I moved to my school it was only like an hour away from New York City so I actually went into right, New yeah. York City very often and that I think was kind of a big um surprise not surprise I knew buildings were going to be tall but you don't really truly understand the scale <laughs> of like how big these buildings are in New York like yeah. you there are times where you'll look up and you don't even really see the top of it you just know the top mm-hmm. is there yeah and I mean, there are stories of if the um, if it's a foggy day, you're the fog will yeah. go like ha- one third to halfway down the building. So it looks like the sky is literally yeah. coming down on the city. That's yeah, how yeah. tall these buildings are. They're huge. <laughs> um, and in, compare that to Paris, where the there's only one really tall building and they made a ban after that because so many Parisians mm. hated the sight of it that after that they were like, yeah. no more tall buildings. So everything in Paris is no higher than, I think I think it's six floors. I could be wrong, but it's right, okay. there's like a limit to the height of buildings in Paris. Mm-hmm. I used to say like in the north of England, in York, they have similar rules because York is such a tourist town nothing is allowed to be as high as York Minster. <laughs> nothing, nothing. So York Minster is a big building. I think it's one of the biggest cathedrals in Britain. So it's huge. But nothing is allowed to come close to it in terms of height. So basically all the houses are two-story buildings. Oh my god! And maybe you have some stuff in the centre of town, which is like three, four storeys, but nothing much more than that. And it's a really strange thing. I mean, the Minster's amazing. The York Minster is a brilliant building. Uh, there's lots of stuff from the outside it's impressive it's huge and the thing is is it's a bit difficult to get a sense of the perspective unless you're sort of like away from it Mm -hmm. and then you just see okay it is the biggest thing around for probably two or three miles like or more it's just like nothing in the center of york is going to be close to that size because it's huge (laughs) and it's on a hill as well so it looks really big oh wow so so you can see it from a distance and it's this big building nothing else compares to it um and they've done it deliberately Mm-hmm. And is that because mostly it is a stone? Town. Oh yeah, it's, I yeah, it's a, I think the whole building. I mean, is completely in stone, apart from parts of sort of some of the interior design, decorating, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, assuming it's sandstone, um, because that's normally what people build cathedrals out of in Britain. Um, and I'm not sure how old it is. It's 
probably from around the 1300s, I think, maybe slightly before. Um, but it's a big building. Um, it's kind of, you know, the Gothic architecture with the pointed arches and all that sort of stuff. And there's all sorts of stuff with inside it, which is kind of interesting, just like they had to strengthen it from underneath because the thing is that obviously the medieval builders didn't really have the technology that we have. So underneath the minster, they built these huge concrete areas to buttress it up and keep it lifted because it's a heavy building because it's huge. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are aspects of it you can see where there are arches that are slightly wonky and stuff like that. And I'm not entirely sure whether that's from time or whether it was just when they built it, it didn't go quite right. So there are some arches that are kind of leaning a bit and you're kind of going, that's a bit weird. <laughs> that's only, you can only see it from the inside. From the outside, it's a massively impressive building. I mean, it's huge. I mean, cathedrals in Britain, generally speaking, are of that kind of medieval Gothic style. I think the only one that isn't, certainly in England, I think the only one that isn't sort of like the medieval style is St. Paul's Cathedral in London. Mm-hmm which is kind of a much more what do they call classical style of building with a massive dome on top of it and it looks some not like a basilica but so like something that could, it was going to be like a basilica but they said no no it's got to have a nave and all this sort of stuff so it's it's got the nave and everything like that but it's got this massive sort of classical dome on top of it which is unusual i think that's the only one in england anyway i can't think of any others yeah. I um, went to see a couple of churches when I was living in France. And I remember mm. one time my brother, I think he was just tired and he was over it. And he was like, why do we keep going to churches? When you see a church, it's like <laughs> going to any other church. And I'm like, actually, they feel kind of different. Like each one has their mm. own individual style. They all have their unique look to them. And I think mm. the most beautiful church I saw while living in France is in Chartres. And I think it's actually considered Mm -hmm. the most beautiful church in Europe. Although that's like a hard thing to measure. So, you know, (laughs) take it with a grain of salt, but it really is beautiful. And when we Mm. went, they were in this multi-year process of cleaning up the church because during the industrial revolution, it tainted a lot of the stones. And so it made it look like this gray building. A lot of churches look gray but that's because of the industrial revolution and and pollution so because of this multi-year process they were cleaning the stones and we i got very lucky my parents went back after me but i got to see a part of the church where they cleaned it and because of the stained glass windows and the clean stone it made me understand how some people could go into churches and feel like they saw like a presence or like this angelic yeah, feeling yeah. because it literally looked like the stones were glowing. Yeah, yeah. It was beautiful. I, it was truly impressive. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, is that a lot of churches used to be painted as well, which mm-hmm. um, in Britain it was all destroyed because of, because of the Reformation and all that sort of stuff. But I think in the medieval period, the, the church itself was designed as sort of like, almost like the journey to heaven. So going through the going through the doors and heading towards the eastern end of the church is sort of like your passage towards heaven mm-hmm. and all that sort of stuff. It's supposed to represent that kind of thing. That's why churches are always a particular shape uh, and always face east-west. Basically, so the eastern end is where you have the altar and all that sort of stuff because it points towards Jerusalem and all that sort of stuff. It's supposed All of it is a kind of... Um, it's a representation of the idea of your 
passage towards heaven in a building. Mm-hmm. That's entirely why it's done like it's done, and that's why it's all uniform. It's all done in a particular way in order to sort of like allow people to get into heaven. And I think, as far as I understand it, before the Black Death in the 1300s, there was an idea that simply by walking into a church, you would be saved. Oh, like by walking into a church, that's it. You're 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 going to go to heaven. It's fine. Interesting. I have that, not heard that before. That's such there's there's such an interesting thing when it comes to like going through arches or going through mm-hmm. an entryway that has this very yeah. cleansing experience because in Japan when you go to temples, um I'm I think I'm specifically thinking of Buddhist. You can also tell me I'm wrong because yeah. I think yeah, I might yeah, be yeah. getting it wrong. There's the Tori, the red archway yes yes buddhist um and so they have the or no that's shinto i think it's a mixture of things though it's a bit difficult it is a mix of things that's also the thing with japan there's there's temples that are shinto and buddhist or they're kind of this mix of both yeah i think it's a more shinto thing but i mean it's it has that thing because i think i think the temple was nanzenji where they have the huge just it's just this massive gateway Mm -hmm. and nothing else around it it's just a gate that stands by itself mm-hmm. and its function is almost to get you to think about things so basically you can walk through the gate if you want to or you could just walk all the way around it mm-hmm. it just stands on its own as a monument with other like parts of the temple as well but that's a kind of a very zen thing mm-hmm. and it is interesting to walk through it because it, it is massive it's big i mean you know i think as i call it york minster in britain like, the doors are not as big as that gate because it's sort of on a plinth almost, and then you have to go up to it, and then down and out the other side, and it's big. It's it's a it's a monument of, and it's all made of wood apart from the plinth, and it's very big, and it does have that process of kind of like a, sort of passing through onto the next thing and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think there is that kind of thing of like in a lot of religious buildings of like the entrance has to be sort of very important as something that matters about passing through in a particular direction towards something else on the other side. It it makes it it it's like it's inviting you. It's the barrier between your everyday life and then this space that has a lot yeah. of religious importance. And I think it's interesting how much a gate can have this really huge monumental meaning to it. And like, I remember Mm. when I was in high school, one of the trips that I took was, if I remember correctly, I think we went to the Fushimi Inari Shrine. Um, This was the first school I went to in Japan, not uh, Canadian Mm -hmm. Academy, but that's the shrine where they have hundreds of these Tori gates that all line up and you just walk through Uh, these gates up the mountain. It was exhausting. Like it's not a short walk. It really is like the super, super long walk up this mountain through all these Tori gates. But after a while, Mm. it feels very much like you're, you're passing through something. You're going through something that, Mm. that has importance. And I think it's a level of cleansing as well. Actually in Japan, there's a lot of elements of cleansing yourself before you enter the shrine or the temple. Yeah. Um, yeah. Whether it's going through the tori or you wash your hands, um, which mm-hmm. is also yeah. a very big part of going to the temple or shrine. The first time we went to mm-hmm. one, we were actually very kindly helped by this uh, young group of Japanese students 
like we were just going to go walk up to the shrine and they stopped us and they like very gently kind of coaxed us over. And in Japan, you don't, um, when you wave someone over, you don't use your hand uh, up. You have your palm pointed down and you kind of mm-hmm. like beckon people. It, it's hard to explain. Yeah. yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, it's like a you little put, wave. You put your fingers towards the ground. Yes. And you kind yeah. of wave them towards you. And so they did that to us and they were showed us how to wash our hands properly. And after that, we were like, oh, this is how you do this. And I think there's something mm. that is very commendable with Japanese shrines and temples is that, yes, they're, they're quite big. They're quite awe-inspiring. But there's also this element of respecting the nature that's around it and taking care of the nature that's around it. It's very important that you don't just take over. A lot of it is Mm. about respecting the nature that exists around the shrine or within it. Yes. Because it's, there is an animistic belief, at least within Shinto, that a lot of spirits reside within rocks, trees, all sorts mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. natural uh, places. And if you were to anger the spirits of those trees or mm-hmm. rocks or whatever, you could bring a lot of bad luck onto yourself or your family. Yes. So better to just be good and treat everything yeah. well. <laughs> yeah, because it's like there was uh, there's a, um, there's a there's a sort of like set of shrines or I don't know if it's even a full temple or such, but it's it's a complex of shrines and temples in in Kyoto in Japan, which is called Tanuki Dani. Mm-hmm. And it's all essentially sort of like dedicated to the Tanuki, which is basically I think in English it's sometimes referred to as a what do they call it? Raccoon um, dog. Raccoon dog. That's it. Yeah, which seems a bit strange to me. But I mean, it's basically a bit. It sort of looks somewhere halfway between a European badger and a raccoon. That's yeah. the easiest way of describing it. Um, probably raccoon is closest to sort of what physically it looks like. I mean, it's not coloured like that, but just its shape is a bit more like a raccoon. Um, but it's all dedicated to this particular animal. Mm-hmm. You just have like lots of little shrines and temples that go up this mountain. Um, which is quite interesting as a concept. But then also like at Todaiji, which is the one which has the biggest single wooden building i mean it's it's a big complex as well so it's got this gate again that you go through and then you walk up to it and then there's another wall and another set of gates that you can go through before you get to the main building but around there they just have lots of deer walking around oh my gosh nada yeah the deer this is something if you go to nada prepare yourself the deer are vicious (laughs) they will bite you they will go after your clothes just just Mm -hmm. know that (laughs) yeah they're not as cute as they look. They're no. Pretty, they can be quite aggressive. Mm-hmm. Um, I was okay as far as I remember the last time I went. It's just, you just have to make it quite clear that you're not, you haven't got anything. Oh so my don't God. take anything with you that they might notice as looking like they can take stuff because they have a kind of, well, because they get fed a lot. And so the tourists come along and give them food and things. And so they have like these special crackers that they give to them and that sort of stuff. Um, but they know that people have food and they want the food, so they'll come up to you. So I'm trying to get stuff off you, um, which is, it's all right, but the thing is, is that you have to be prepared for that. Mm-hmm. Because they're certainly bigger than a dog, so if it decides it wants to come after you and follow you around, it's big enough to keep pace and it's big enough to make you a little bit worried. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it can be alarming. It can be kind of scary. Yeah. 
Um, I was trying to think of other places I've been to where I found the architecture very stunning or kind of um, stuck to my Mm. mind. And I actually was thinking about when my family and I, sometimes we would go to Bali over like winter breaks because um, when we were living in Japan or in South Korea, it can get pretty cold in the winter. And my Mm -hmm. dad is the type of person who in the winter time, he wants to be warm, Like he wants a little Mm -hmm. break of warmth. Mm -hmm. So we would go to Bali. And I remember some of the architecture that I really liked about Bali was, again, a lot of things were made out of wood. Um, Mm. And a lot of the way that the buildings were structured was that there were always these, there was always a lot of open air within the building structure. There was a lot of space so that air could come in and flow. So you would really have a lot of spaces where Uh sometimes it genuinely looked like just a roof and then just flooring. So there weren't really walls, but it helped when it got really hot and what you needed was just a stiff breeze to cool you down. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And if you think about it, traditionally the AC was not around for like millions of years. It's only been within the last 30, 40 years that we've really had what we think of as AC. So you need to have a traditional building style that allows for, heat to not get encapsulated and instead have heat escape. And so having as many holes or just space as possible to let ventilation Mm -hmm. come through, you really, really need that. So that's why in Bali, Louisiana, traditional buildings have those airways and it, it, it actually allows you to really appreciate how much a breeze is so wonderful. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I know that sounds ridiculous, but like in the dead heat of summer, you don't have AC, but you're just dying and you get that breeze. Oh, it's the best feeling. (laughs) It makes all the difference. It really does. It can take you from being completely miserable to suddenly being like a happy person. Yeah, exactly. Because it does get hot. Oh my gosh. It does get hot. Actually, it gets really hot in Japan. People don't think that, but. Oh no. Yeah. End of uh, July, I, August. Oh, yeah. Wait, you're just looking at 40 degrees C. Mm. Easily. Especially in the big cities. I just like people in the UK always go, they always have this thing in the UK. I kind of go, oh, well, it's too cold. It's miserable. I don't like it. And then it gets to like 20 degrees C. And then they go, oh, it's too hot. Can't hack it. And he's going, what? <laughs> you're just moaning it was too cold and now it's too hot. I was like, people always... Because I work, so when I go to work and stuff like that, I'm working with people quite a lot. So there's got the customers coming in and kind of going, oh, God, you know, it's really hot today. It's boiling. And you're kind of going, it's only 23. <laughs> like, this is nothing. And like, you're there, like, because I still continue to, I wear a t shirt on some hot days, but I still kind of wear jeans and like all that sort of stuff. Because I'm just kind of going, it's not that hot. But they're all going, oh, it's too hot for me. I can't hack it. It's like, well, <laughs> I, it is Britain, but I mean, it's that kind of thing. Is like you know, because I mean, like south of France gets quite hot as well, doesn't it, or quite warm? Yeah, I mean, it's it's close to it's closer to the Mediterranean. The mm, south yeah. uh, east southwest of France it touches Spain. The southeast of France mm-hmm. st- touches Italy. So it it can get really hot in the summer in the south yeah. of France. Um, 
and I think the architecture, that's the thing that's so interesting with, with France is that as you drive down that country, you can see the architecture literally changing mm. as you drive down. Yeah. You see that the materials that are used or the sh- shapes of the buildings themselves change slightly mm-hmm. because temperature changes and the weather is different mm-hmm. in those areas. Um, so it is kind of cool to see that happen. Uh, I'm curious, Marcus, because this was something I was mm-hmm. thinking about for myself because I have one place specifically that I could pinpoint and be like, I want to visit it. Is there a place that you want to visit just based on its architecture? Because oh. I know for myself, I want to see the Sagrada Familia. Okay. In Spain. Um, yes. Just because it's such an interesting building i've seen photos mm-hmm. of it online and i feel like it's something that in person would be even more inspiring um regardless yeah. of the fact that it's a church i just find that that architecture where it's very curvy and wavy and it, it, it mm. feels kind of mad i like that there's something about it where yeah. i yeah. feel like i would have a really great time just staring at that building yeah God, there's so many different things that I can think of that I would like to go to or revisit anyway. Um, so much stuff. Well, what are some of the places? Oh, it doesn't have to be St. one Peter's. only place. <laughs> yeah, I mean, St. Peter's in Rome would be a good one to go to. Mm-hmm. I think that would be really interesting to see. Um, I think, weirdly, some of the stuff in Germany, I think Hamburg would be interesting because it's got quite a few buildings that are unusual just to do, sometimes to do with the industrial era and all that sort of stuff. Um, then some of the sort of like Stone Age stuff that you get in, I mean, like, like I've seen Karnak in France. That's impressive. And that that's basically a kind of architecture. Um, and there's a place in the north of Scotland, uh, the island of Orkney, which has neolithic buildings which are pretty impressive so they're about as old as the pyramids smaller but they're all made by sort of like neolithic farming peoples and so like you know the sewn circles and there's a place called um maze howl which is basically just a a hill that's man-made and on the inside it's got stone chambers and it used to be a burial tomb Oh. And it's quite strange. So it's got this very low roof. So you'd basically have to be bent double to be able to get into it. And the way that it works is on the winter solstice, the light from the sun always passes directly down the passage and lights up the back of it. Wow. There's that sort of stuff. And then there's also Egypt as well. I mean, things like the pyramids, um, Luxor and all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. There are those sorts of places. There's so much stuff. I mean, even in... in United States, I cannot remember what the name of the group of the, uh, the North American natives was. Um, but they have, they built quite a lot of stuff there. So that's ancient architecture that, that it would be good to see. I mean, there's so much stuff. There is so much stuff. There's actually a place that I got to see when I was younger um, that I, f- I always felt very grateful that my parents just wanted to travel enough that we got to go. It's in the Four mm. Corners area and it, belong to i believe the navajo tribe and it's an area where they basically use the natural landscape that existed um and they carved into the stone of these giant like hill well not hills Mm -hmm. they're more like um like a cliff yeah basically like these giant stone cliffs and the rock 
kind of has a reddish hue to it. So it just looks like everything's kind of shiny. Yes. I yeah. actually got to visit that area. And oh, okay. it's really cool. If you get the chance to go, it's absolutely beautiful. I think, unfortunately, because there is such a tourism there, I think mm-hmm. sometimes people don't appreciate how much has been lost and how many tribes have been yeah. taken away from their native homelands. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is kind of treated as a, as a tourist thing and not as these yeah. people are still around and they have lost their homelands. Um, yeah. But it is very awe-inspiring to see it. And because we, mm. uh, at least as Americans, we treat ancient history of the American people. We kind of just ignore it as much as possible. And we don't realize yeah. that there were entire communities, entire social um, groups that have this long, long history and have existed there for generations and generations. Mm-hmm. And the architecture that they created, it makes sense for the spaces that they were in. They created yeah. entire civilizations for themselves out of what materials they had and it's just it's very impressive to see it's honestly beautiful just because of the stone it is beautiful yeah i mean another one talking about native groups that were kind of like displaced is um the stuff in peru like machu picchu and Mm -hmm. those sorts of places where they the building is just absolutely phenomenal like the stones are just lock into each other there's no mortar or anything like that they're just built to sit on top of each other in such a way that the building won't fall i would love to see that i just got hit with this memory of when i was living in guatemala and uh Mm. we drove up to the these mayan um these old this old mayan Mm. basically like town (laughs) essentially and what we found out later was that these were the same buildings that if you watch one of the star wars movies i think the third one of the old series you can literally yeah. see the very tops of the of the uh mayan ruins just above mm-hmm. the forest eye line so as they're like pan around you oh, kind of right, see okay. in the distance like these stone mayan structures and that's from mm when we went to visit it. And I think the thing that was so impressive is that you realize these structures have been here for thousands of years. They have barely eroded. They're still existing. And the thing that actually shocked me the most was how tall all the stairs were. (laughs) I mean, yes, I was small. I was a child, but still like even my dad, who is six foot tall, has long legs. He was having trouble getting up the stairs and it's steep. Like these are not, Mm. these are not long, big steps. These are shallow. These are purposeful. You walk those steps up because you have a purpose. You need to get up. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I can't imagine like the amount of effort that it took to build those things because they're still, that's, they're still around. That's impressive. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think it was Neil deGrasse Tyson that was talking about this in terms of just like the physics of it is like the best building that's going to survive the most is a pyramid because it's heavier at the bottom than it is at the top. Mm-hmm. So basically, if it's if, with the sloping sides and stuff like that, the weight is being distributed down to the bottom. So at the bottom, it gets lighter and lighter and lighter as it gets to the top. So the thing is that that thing's going to survive for centuries mm-hmm. uh, because because of its shape mm-hmm. and because it's all made of the same rock. I mean, if the rock's hard enough, it's going to be fine for a long, 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 long time. Yeah, even with erosion and all that sort of stuff. 
Yeah, and these things lasted. I mean, they're they're mm. still around. People are still walking up and down them. It's it's pretty impressive. Yeah. Kind of scary. <laughs> well, there was another fun one actually. There's because uh, I've been because in the south of England, there's some like really impressive places. You know, like Stonehenge, Avebury, and places like that. And Avebury is impressive because it's the I. Th- I don't know if it's the biggest stone circle in Britain, but it's definitely the biggest stone circle in England. It's so big, it has a village inside it. It's huge. And there are a few... Avebury's an interesting place to go because there are quite a few different sort of like landmarks there. And this is, again, kind of architecture. Um, but Avebury, the thing is that the stones are probably two and a half, three metres tall in some mm-hmm. cases. So they're big. But then the thing is, it has this massive... Because what a henge is, is essentially what a henge has to have... It has a, it's a circle with a ditch and then a bank on the outside of the ditch. That's what defines a henge. That's the definition of a henge. And the thing is, is that basically the bank on the outside of the ditch, the ditch is probably like three, four metres deep and the bank is four metres high. Three, four metres high. Wow. It's insanely big. This is a huge undertaking. And this thing is not just that it's... like Not all of the bank and all of the ditch are that sort of deep all the way around. But if you imagine that I don't know I don't know what the diameter of the place is, it's it has a village inside it. It's huge. So it's big. It's really big, and the stones are really big, and the bank and ditch are really big. And the other thing that's nearby is um, what's called Silbury Hill. And this is the tallest man-made hill in Europe, and it comes close to the height of some of the pyramids at Giza. So it comes close to the same. It's huge. It's just this huge mound of earth. But it was made in the Iron Age. So it's about 1,500 years old, maybe a bit older. Oh my gosh. And it's huge. It's just this massive hill and nobody knows what it's for. <laughs> There's nothing inside it. It's But they know there. it's man-made. It just, but it's just there. And I th- it, must, it must be something to do with the landscape and that kind of thing. Because a lot of um, this ancient architecture is to do with landscape and things like that. I think the Egyptians, I think, were thinking about it in the same way. If you ever go to Stonehenge, the thing is that the henge itself is impressive. But if you walk around the landscape and see what people are up to, there are really strange things. There are some things that are older than Stonehenge that were there before it was there. Um, so there's this thing called, the, they call it the Cursus, because people thought that it looked like a Roman um, circus. Mm-hmm. Because it, it was, it's, just, it's just a bank. It's not even that high. So it's no higher than a table, really, with a little ditch on the inside. But this thing is, I think, close to a kilometre long from top to bottom. And it's just a bank and ditch all the way around. Um Nobody knows what that's for, but there's like this architecture that nobody knows about. And some of the ancient stuff becomes really interesting because we don't know what it's for. Yeah, We know that it exists and we know that it matters and we know that it probably is religious to some extent, but we don't know why and what it's for. Yeah, it's really fascinating. It's it's always something that we kind of take architecture for granted, especially if we stay in mm. certain areas for very long periods. But then when you go to other places, it starts to make sense why things look very similar or look a certain Mm -hmm. way. Like when you live in Japan, it makes sense why the buildings are the way they are or why traditional buildings were built the way they were. And then when you go to Europe, you're like, oh, this is completely different. Why is it completely different? Oh, well, because the materials are different. The landscape's different. Yada, Mm -hmm. yada, yada. So I think it's something that when you travel, you really start to appreciate, even if it's subconsciously, Mm. because it really does change and it can change very dramatically from one place to another. Yeah. Yeah. It, and it's sort of like, is one of the reasons why it's kind of a good idea to start to try and understand religion a bit. I mean, I'm not religious at all, but if you, if you, if you don't give yourself the time 
to learn about religion, probably a lot of the architecture that you see in the world will not make sense. If you don't know about history, you're not going to understand a lot of the architecture that you see or why people live in the way that they do. Mm -hmm. And this is like uh, um, in the UK in a lot of northern towns, what they have is like huge numbers of terraced houses. They're quite, they're not particularly long necessarily, or they're not, and they're not particularly wide, but they're designed in a particular way. The terraced houses are all fairly uniform and you find places a bit like that in york but you find them a lot in manchester and places like that which are old industrial towns and the reason is the reason that that architecture is there is because that's where the workers lived mm-hmm. so that's what the terraced house that's what the terraced houses are for that was their purpose and so the design of houses to an extent is based in britain anyways based on what people were willing to live in during the industrial era i mean right up until the 70s and 80s when they actually started closing the mining and factories down that's what they were for that's what the purpose was was to house people who worked in those areas mm-hmm. uh, that's the kind of thing about the architecture is it's just interesting it becomes kind of quintessentially english you kind of think oh yeah that's a very i would say english thing to do because like, the scots do things a bit differently mm-hmm. they have other kinds of buildings they tend to build them quite tall so they have high tenements as they call it and to an extent those are to help house workers mm-hmm. scottish architecture i think is different you could you look at a scottish building and you go that's scottish <laughs> it, it, it just it just has its own style mm-hmm. you, you, you look, i mean if you look at photographs of edinburgh it doesn't look like you can tell though that's not england mm-hmm. it just it wouldn't appear in an english city right you just think of that yeah you know that looks like a photograph of edinburgh because the architecture is impressive as well yeah it's really it's fascinating granite, yeah but yeah, thank you, Mark. This has been fun. I always love talking yeah, about this kind of stuff because I feel like it's stuff that is not the forefront of people's uh, like plans when they go travel somewhere. But yeah, this architecture can be just as impressive as a really good dining experience. Yeah, and the thing is, it, it is something that somebody built a long time ago. Mm-hmm. So I mean, the thing is, is that with cuisine and stuff like that it, it, it's a it's a skill that's passed down from generation to generation whereas a building is the object that is passed down from generation to generation and it's for not all time because nothing lasts forever but the thing is is that it is something that was probably made half a millennia or a millennium ago mm-hmm. you're looking at something that somebody built you know, 500 to 1,000 years ago or more in the case of things like pyramids in, in South America and also pyramids in, well, Central and South America and then also sort of pyramids in Egypt and things like that. They're really ancient. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, stone circles, you've got Karnak and all that sort of stuff. These are all things that were built, you know, sometimes in some cases before people even knew how to work metal properly. Yeah. They were building stuff. We're always building. <laughs> Oh, yeah. As a species, we're like, oh, we've got this. We're going to build it. Here we go. <laughs> yep. Yep. And even now, modern architecture, there's a lot of good stuff in modern architecture. I mean, I was going to, I mean, I'm not sure how much time we got left, but I was just talking about the area in London called Barbican. There was a whole set of ideas in the 50s and 60s about modern architecture. And the area in London called Barbican was based on the idea of having um, uh, sort of, what do they call them? I can't. I don't think it was streets in the sky as such, but they had like it was sort of like foot footpaths in the sky. So basically, what was going to happen was, is as the car took over the roads, what you would do is you'd lift the pedestrian areas above those, mm-hmm. so that people could walk along and be safe and all that sort of stuff. And that's an interesting. I mean, they're monumental buildings, and I really like them. But the thing is that they're very 
they're kind of an idea of the future that never happened, which is interesting. That is interesting. That it's mm. really it's fascinating because they have something kind of similar in New York City. They have mm. very few that are left, but what were called high lines, they were mm-hmm. subways or trains that were above ground because most New York mm-hmm. City subway system it's below ground. But there's were specific areas that they were up they were above ground train lines um and mm. most of them got taken down or they eroded whatever it might be but then in new york there was this push to save one of them and turn it into a pedestrian area and that became what's known now as the high line and so if you go into Mm -hmm. new york there's the high line basically runs from like it's on the west side of the city but it runs up multiple street like it goes through a good portion of Manhattan. And if you want to walk it, it's, there's nature there. Sometimes people will do art stuff. Um, There's -hmm. sometimes exhibits or it branches out into hotels. Like it really is a really cool way of trying to preserve the history of the city, but also do something different and interesting that Mm, got taken away mostly. Yeah. It's a bit of a shame, isn't it? Yeah. It's interesting to see how architecture now is shaping with you know, being aware of what has happened historically and trying to mm-hmm. preserve that, but also keep in mind what's coming up in our future and what we need to do to house all the people we have. It's just fascinating yeah. to see how different cities are approaching architecture as they move forward and grow. Yes, yes. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Well, thank you everyone for joining us today. I've had a great time. Um, Mm -hmm. And if you have any questions, as always, reach out to us and uh, see you next time, Marcus. Right. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, If you want to find us, we are on Twitter at Passport, N-E-C-E-S-S-1. We are also on YouTube, and you can find us anywhere where fine podcasts can be found. Um, Through Anchor, that is our main platform, but you can also find us through Spotify, Apple Music, etc. Please feel free to leave us a comment, a review. We definitely appreciate those. They make us really happy uh, to see them. And feel free to um, send us questions via Twitter or any of the uh, formats that we're on. We have some really exciting episodes lined up in the future. Um, and hopefully we will have a Facebook group that will be up and running soon uh, where you can absolutely chat with other people who listen to the podcast or even ask us questions. Uh, so thank you so much again for listening and we can't wait to see you next time. Bye. Bye.